Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Nathaniel Worley. And I'm Doris Marquevis. And today we are sitting with Amanda Little. Amanda is a graduate from Brown University and a professor of science writing and journalism at Vanderbilt University. She's the author of The Fate of Food, What We'll Eat in a Bigger, Hotter, Smarter World, and Power Trip, The Story of America's Love Affair with Energy. She is, she is a columnist for Bloomberg, where she writes about the environment, agriculture, and innovation, and a former columnist for Outside Magazine and Grist. She has published works in the New York Times, Washington Post, Vanity Fair, and Rolling Stone, among many others. She is also the recipient for many awards like the Rachel Carson Environment Book Award from the Society for Environmental Journalists. Thank you so much for joining us today, Amanda. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. So, Amanda, I'd like to start by first asking about um, education's role in the future of food. So, I mean, this recording even, uh, it's on a college campus. You're giving a talk at the Athenaeum tonight. And even with your book and just touring around the country and around the world, um, I think education has definitely played a big role, it seems, um, in your understanding of food as well. Um, you are a professor at Vanderbilt University as well. Um, so just to start, at any stage in education from preschool to graduate, what do you think the role of education is to like um, inform people about smart ways to eat, smart ways to buy, anything like that? Great question. And I should start with the fact that it was my undergraduate students, along with my kids, who really pushed me to examine the intersection of food and climate. I think Gen Z and certainly millennials uh, have a really deep personal engagement with uh, food, food choices, uh, and understanding the power of consumers to you know push transformative ta- change in the industry. And I have really struggled as a virtuous eater. <laughs> I have been very open and honest with my students when we're uh, in the classroom talking about um, agriculture and climate change and um, and the importance of making personal decisions around uh, food and diet uh, that can benefit the planet and human health. Um, and I really struggled to, as a vegan, uh, failed vegan, and I'm a lapsed vegetarian, and I've, I really kind of struggled struggle with that. And my students held me accountable. And they said, you can't write and think about these issues which with without really changing your behavior and examining um, that. And, I, and it pushed me to really think about this in a, in, in, on a grand scale, really pushed me uh, to pursue this as a what became an eight-year investigative project um, and is ongoing with my Bloomberg column. So I will say, number one, the energy of students today uh, in generation and Gen Z and you know my millennial students were really pushed me to think about this in in very serious terms. Um, and then I would say that there are so many exciting interdisciplinary ways in which education can can explore this topic. Um, my courses at Vanderbilt um, are in the English department. They're in the you know science writing and science communication department. I have uh, students who certainly have um, you know chemistry and science and agronomy focuses, um, poli-sci, poli, uh, uh, poli-sci, there's 
and history. I mean, there's so many ways in which the story of agriculture and this great evolution in um, in the way that in, in food systems and the way we're thinking about dynamic innovation in food systems, drawing on tradition, drawing on new innovation. I even have engineering students in my courses. Um, the, the, the future of agriculture and certainly sustainable food systems is going to require engagement across so many disciplines. Right. And so I think, you know, certainly K to 12 education and undergraduate education and graduate education can be thinking about, you know, looking at food systems in a really dynamic, intersectional way. Um, so in a kindergarten, it might be having uh, or, you know, an elementary school, having an edible you know, schoolyard, having a, um, a, a vegetable garden on campus. The kids use that to measure the plant growth, to draw and write poems about the plants, to uh, learn about, um, you know, plant biology, et cetera. There's so many disciplines that are, you know, present in that one um, garden space. And I think likewise, the way in which we're examining food systems um, draws on necessarily all these different you know, uh, disciplines, right? Draws on writing <laughs> and podcasting and media, um, draws on history and the evolution of agriculture over time, draws on policy and, um, and, and, and political science and the way that we're developing policies uh, to tackle this issue, and certainly on climate and environmental studies. Um, so education systems are going to be essential to solving this problem and most importantly getting students to think about this as a as a as a really intersectional topic and above all a topic that centers on um social justice human justice food justice climate justice it is um you know an ethical uh moral and economic imperative to begin solving the problems in our food systems yeah yeah and that's definitely a great answer. I mean, like food really is like a universal thing that everyone does require. I mean, even this podcast is free food for thought. So um. I, I want to jump in on that because it's yeah. a great point. You know, I have been writing about climate change for basically 20 years since the first sort of major recognized IPCC report, International Panel on Climate Change report in 2001. Um, and all my reporting has been in one way or another an effort to find a way into the climate topic that's accessible, that's meaningful, that feels personal and immediate to to readers. And so I started out as an energy uh, writer. I, I looked at the energy industry and evolution in energy technologies and, and transportation technologies. Um, I looked and, and from there, I, I really got interested in food and agriculture um, because it felt like uh, as one reader described it to me, the love language of the climate movement, right? The 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 food is um, you know about science. Food is about lifestyle. Food is about policy, um, and food is very deeply about the environment and hydrological systems and <laughs> the availability of water and and arable soil. So so that actually for me became really important to my storytelling. This was sort of at the beating heart of the climate issue, a way of connecting readers to a topic that feels really complex and overwhelming 
overwhelming, um, but it's a way of, 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 of making it feel very personal and immediate. Uh, and so I appreciate that point because I think it is it is a prism through which we can understand a lot of things about, you know, um, our society, our, um, econ- our, our economy and our environment. Yeah, because even up to a uh, relatively recent point in history, people were growing their own food. Um, trading wasn't quite as prevalent as it is today. And I think there was definitely more of a, um, a connection to to what you are consuming, uh, whether it be food or any other resource. And I think a lot of that has seemingly gone away in the past few hundred years, um, especially post-Industrial Revolution. Um, but kind of touching on that point as well, I was uh, curious what your thoughts are on kind of the role of um, national global corporations, big companies like Tyson, um, their role in in this kind of like um, shift in, in food production, food transportation, everything like that. Um, like you go into a grocery store in the U.S. today, there's 10 different types of pistachios. There's a whole shelf of cereal. Is it perhaps like um, not having enough simplicity and choice could be part of the issue. Like the um, consumers do vote with their dollars, but are we perhaps given too much voting power, too many choices to make? Could it be simplified in a way that could be beneficial? It's a great question. And I do think agriculture is a really interesting industry to look at in terms of the transformation we're beginning to witness. We've seen huge transformation in the energy industry shifting from fossil fuels to renewables and transportation from the combustion engine toward electric um, and in agriculture from uh, really damaging uh, industrial practices toward um, sustainable and regenerative practices. What's different about agriculture is that it, more than any other industry, is deeply vulnerable to the pressures of climate change. You can keep operating a coal plant through a heat wave uh, and drive a car through um, a drought, but you can't grow food in those conditions. So I have interviewed a lot of the um, you know executives at a major food producing companies, both in ag and and processing. And they're scared. They're really aware that they are facing disruption, that there needs to be a pretty significant reimagining and probably dismantling of the food systems as we know it. Um, We have two big challenges going forward. Uh, We have to redress and and address the problems of our current industrial ag system. And we have to prepare for the pressures ahead. The problem, though, is that the solutions that have been proposed by, you know, a lot of the sustainable food advocates are out of reach financially for a lot of us. I personally can't I don't have the budget to shop at farmers markets and Whole Foods and, um, you know, and, and, and I don't have the skills to grow my own food. And so we we don't have really achievable solutions yet, we, which is to say that it is important for us to think about sustainability, not just as, um, you know, good for the planet and human health, but also affordable, which means we need the big food producers in play because the one thing they've been able to do is produce affordable, accessible foods, right? And I agree with you that we don't need 15 kinds of every single product on the shelf, and we do need simplification, but we also need scale, and that's part of the question going forward is how do we produce food sustainably 
in a way that heals the planet rather than, you know, intensifies the climate problem. But how do we also do it at scale in a way that's affordable and accessible to low and middle income communities? And especially when I've traveled to emerging economies throughout Southeastern Africa in particular and in the Middle East where there's a lot of food security problems, they're saying we need to do food at scale. We need food security. We, we, it's not that we don't want to produce a lot of food. We need to be able to do it, do that sustainably. And so I think we need to change the conversation away from how do we dismantle and get rid of industrial agriculture to how do we do that well and intelligently and in a way that's fair and, and, and accessible and equitable. Yeah, for sure. Um, sort of going off, you mentioned like you've traveled to many places, especially for your most recent book and interviewed many people. Um, I was wondering, what is a moment that sticks out to you or a finding or an issue that left you in awe that you can speak of on? Mm. Wow, thank you. I love that question. Well, you know, I'm going to go back to um, a, a story of... Um, that actually isn't far from here, up the coast uh, in Sunnyvale, California, uh, when I met a man named Jorge Herod, who uh, was raised in Lima, Peru. He invented the world's first robotic weeder, <laughs> weeding robot. And he invited me to witness the maiden voyage of this robot in Arkansas. And I drove from my uh, house in Nashville, Tennessee, to Arkansas, which is the weed capital of the world. There were like more weeds in Arkansas than anywhere else. And I was kind of expecting like C-3PO to walk out into the field and pluck weeds. And, um, and, and in fact, it was this bank of cameras attached to the back of a tractor that was dragged down a field in Arkansas. And those cameras were able to identify the difference between the edible crop that was being grown and the weeds that were trying to strangle it. And then deploy with these tiny little jets of, of, of concentrated fertilizer or herbicide to kill the baby weed. And, and, and that machine, over the course of several days, I watched it learn through using AI and machine intelligence, got better at be and better at identifying the plant and the weed and with less and less agrochemical dealing with the weed problem. The, the, big, the big takeaway that was just absolutely staggering to me was this is this is reducing the application of herbicide, which has huge impacts on the soil and huge impacts on human health, by up to 90% in those first two weeks of this intelligent machine. And it made me realize how dumb the machines are <laughs> that we have been using for large-scale agriculture, right? And this and and what Jorge said to me was, I can create robots that don't compete with nature, but that help us protect it. And he had grown up working on his uh, grandparents' uh, farm uh, in in Peru, weeding every summer. And he remembers, you know, eight, nine years old, picking the same weed and going, this is just not something that I should waste my time doing. So he ends up, you know, 20, 30 years later, creating this machine. And and that was a moment where I began to see that the, the opportunities we have – to, to change the conversation around food and sustainability, um, to move it beyond technology versus nature. You know, do, are we going to do sustainable food, um, sort of like pre-industrial agriculture and everything go back to the way it was in, you know, the 1800s? Or are we going to do large-scale industrial me mechanized farming? It's not either or. There's a way to do 
you know, intelligent, use intelligent applications of technology that don't compete with sustainability, but elevate it and, and support it. And I just... I really did. My jaw dropped on that day and it interrupted so many times afterwards. But it was it was Jorge's comment about this kind of peacemaking that he had in mind, creating synergies between, um, you know, intelligent uh, technologies and, and natural systems rather than competitive. And we know that there have been so many destructive applications of technology in food beyond probably any other industry. So, uh, so destructive. But that was a moment where I thought, okay, we need to expand this conversation beyond either or um, and think about how we can resolve a lot of that sort of um, binary tension in in this this conversation around uh, the future of food. So as a storyteller and certainly as a, you know, as someone in search of solutions, I was really moved. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating story. And what it makes me think about is um, sort of the push it seems now to kind of apply um like nature's technology um to real world um kind of like human-made technology um because there's definitely a lot to learn that i think we've seemingly forgotten but again it is also like not going back to kind of like pre-industrial revolution styles of of farming and everything um but kind of like that sweet spot in between seems to be what we need and I think uh, uh, seemingly a common trend in what you've been discussing is the idea of efficiency being what is what is most needed, Um, whether it's efficiency in um, picking weeds in a farm or efficiency in the amount of feed required for um, raising uh, like a herd of animals or fish or growing crops or anything like that. Um, Would you say efficiency is really kind of the key, the the name of the game, or are there other factors as well? Absolutely. It is it is so much about precision and efficiency. So many of the new new technologies that are coming into play are about precision and efficiency, but it is also about diversity and dynamic systems, right? So what's exciting about that robotic weeder is not just that it can reduce the application of agri- you know agrochemicals by 90 to 95 percent as it gets you know more and more effective and efficient um, but that it means that we're we can stop farming on a field by field basis um, and 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 start farming on a plant by plant basis so that that one machine can be tending um, you know, the, a, a particular crop, let's say it's a tomato, um, and addressing exactly the needs of that one plant, how much fertilizer it needs, how much, you know, uh, you know nutrient, pesticide, et cetera. And, and, and then it can treat it and then it can treat, you know, the next plant um, also individually, which, which, which again means that you can bring intercropping and diversity into a field. The reason why we have monocropping, which is just such a huge problem um, and so devastating to soil um, and, of course, supercharges pest problems and weed problems, is that it, 
is that we have dumb machines that need to treat every plant the same way. But if if these machines can really, you know, connect with and understand the differences between the plants in one field, you can uh, begin to mimic natural systems and bring diversity into fields, which then restores soil health. Again, it's technology learning from the wisdom of natural systems, uh, and so it it is exactly as you say. It's 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 a it's a very different. It's not technology dominating natural systems. It's technology you working in the service of natural systems, and it's a very it's it's a very different posture. It's a very crucial kind of humility that we need with which we need to approach the problems in our food systems. Yeah. So sort of with technology, like there seems to be very different views on whether it can help or not. Um, I was wondering about what are your thoughts sort of like on the current perception of like GMOs? Like a lot of people tend to have a negative view on it and try to avoid it, even though it tends to be pretty much everywhere um, and a lot of our fruits. So what are your thoughts on the current perception of GMOs and where should it be, you think? Great question. Difficult question, because I, like so many other you know, people in the audience and probably at this table are... Um, have to suppress my gag reflex whenever I see, you know, this GMO anything, right? Um, GMOs are like iPads. They're a platform for technology, right? And they can be used for great content and they can be used for very destructive content. Um, it is, uh, it, or, or, or TV, let's say. I mean, to say that TV is just bad for you know, the mind and the soul. There's a lot on television that's terrible for the mind and the soul. I don't even know if you all even have the word television anywhere, but <laughs> streaming entertainment, right? You know, like to say Netflix is bad for humanity. There's a lot of shows that are terrible, but Netflix is just a platform through which application and, you know, um, uh, through which content opportunities are applied. GMOs are a platform through which content opportunities are applied. And the way we, we've been using GMOs is has been, for the most part, very destructive, right? We've designed plants to tolerate herbicide, right? So that's how we can broadcast spray thousands and thousands, millions of acres with glyphosate because we've engineered plants to tolerate that chemical so they can just blast the weeds. The plants don't die. We eat those plants. We consume glyphosate and we we know all the human health problems associated with carcinogenic herbicides, right? So that's a really bad application if you're looking at it from a human health and, you know, soil health standpoint, bad application of a technology. What if you use that same breeding technology, which makes it possible to alter the genome of, of, of a plant um, and, and you know, uh, insert um, some genetic information from another species? What if you do that in a way that builds um, – drought and heat tolerance into um, an heirloom crop, for example, um, uh, or an indigenous uh, uh, food source uh, that uh, is essential to the tradition of a community and to the to the health and nourishment of a community, but can't grow in that region anymore because of flooding, because of heat, because of invasive insects, et cetera. So if we can use this very, very powerful technology to uh, Create plants that can um, respond to and 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 be resilient in the face of climate change. I think it's a very important to consider that option. The notion that GMOs are inherently bad for human health um, and inherently uh, threaten natural systems has been tremendously distorted. Um, 
on in the media. Um, and, and so I think we need to shift the conversation around which applications of GMOs are harmful, which applications of GMOs are potentially beneficial, again, to human health and to equitable food distribution. There are going to be many regions in this world uh, where it becomes harder and harder to grow food. Um, if you look at climate models, the already hot, dry regions, mostly in equatorial nations, um, become hotter and drier, right? Uh, that's a serious problem for billions of people. Uh, so we need to bring um, some really dynamic uh, breeding technologies to the table uh, to, uh, you know, consider ways to grow staple food crops in regions where there's less and less arable land. The IPCC has predicted that uh, by mid-century, and one of the the, the, the quotes um, from an IPCC report is, the world may reach a threshold of global warming beyond which current agricultural practices can no longer support large human civilizations. That's an actual quote. I know it's a little wordy, but it is the way that the IPCC put it, and I think it's important. So how do we use the tools we have to bear and traditional farming um, systems that, that protect soil health? Most importantly, that restore soil health. Uh, how because soil that's healthy is much more resilient in the face of climate pressures. How do we do that um, in a way that serves the most people? Because in a climate, in a warmer world, the people with the least will suffer the most. And so, I do think that we have to consider GMOs as a way of, you know, a, a, of, of developing uh, crops. They can tolerate harsher growing conditions. Um, and one example is the splicing of a, of a sunflower, of genetic information from a sunflower, which is very drought tolerant, into um, a wheat crop uh, or a wheat seed. And that um, has just uh, emerged in recent months um, and been approved. And it's one of the first examples of a GMO crop that actually could have real benefits to humanity rather than, um, you know, damaging impacts on on human health and the environment. Um, so I think the conversation is beginning to change. But in no way am I saying GMOs will save the world, but I'm saying it's a much more nuanced conversation than the one we're having, which is GMOs are bad and, you know, causing the destruction of the environment. It's, 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 it's much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm, definitely. And it's, it's really like, um, my my view of it is at least is like it's a, a tool in a toolbox of a lot of different tools that we need to use. Um, and just to quickly go back to the point you made at the beginning of um, the analogy to an iPad, I think that's really great because that's not something I've considered before where it's like GMOs are just a, a way in which we can um, do a lot of different things through modifying uh, the different organisms. But Kind of to shift and and get into the final question um, of today, um, I, I think that analogy was a great way to effectively communicate this idea of GMOs. And I know you've interviewed um, several notable people, including, I believe, uh, President Obama. You did an interview. Um, but even when writing the book, I'm, I'm just curious, um, advice you have for college students to improve their communication skills, 
um, their wordplay, really just like how we can effectively communicate ideas in a world in which it seems like ideas dominate uh, like in increasingly polarizing ways. I love that question. Thank you. Um, I, I will give you the advice that President Obama gave me at the time he was Senator Obama, and it was 2004. He had just been elected to the Senate, um, uh, and uh, which you know was the crucial um, you know, role that set him up for his 2008 presidential campaign. And uh, he had been elected by many conservative and many rural and many agricultural voters in Illinois, which is obviously a big agricultural state, um, he had been elected on the same ballot. The same voter who elected him into office also elected George W. Bush back into the Oval Office. And I asked him in that my first interview with him, how did you manage to do that? How did you manage to convince a lot of conservative voters who, who were voting for President Bush's second term to put you into the U.S. Senate? And he said, the answer is simple. I'm a storyteller. And I have the great privilege and um, honor of having a, gr a great story to tell. And before I'm a politician, before I'm um, pretty much anything else, you know, uh, a, a public figure, a diplomat, I am a storyteller. And uh, I sat down at kitchen table after kitchen table, and I talked with voters, and I told them who I am and what I believe in. And you are also a storyteller. And I will say this to the two of you. You are also storytellers. And he said the single most important thing in transformative change is the telling of stories, and and it, which then moves people to understanding and beyond that to action. And he said that uh, it has never been more important at a moment when we are facing these huge cultural and societal and political challenges. When we need political change, we need technological change. Those will be important to solving climate change for sure. But above all, we need shifts in consciousness. We need broader, deeper understanding. We need to know how to listen to each other. <laughs> we need to hear each other's stories. We need stories told in a way that they can be heard and that we, it, we be open-hearted enough and open-minded enough to be changed by them. And it all comes down to fundamentally everything, transformations in our, um, in our industries, transformations in our politics will come down to storytelling and sitting down like we're doing right here and talking to each other. Um, and that's, he said, he and I, he had given me 20 minutes for this interview. And I know we're also up against a time limit here. So, uh, and and he, I had 16 pages of questions that I had prepared for him. <laughs> and he, and his handlers tried to sh shove me out of the uh, room and he patted my page and he said, look, I can see how much you have prepared for this. I will give you the time that you need. And we talked for an hour and a half. Mm. And, you know, that he was demonstrating again, you know, when you prepare for and bring yourself to conversations that matter and you show that you are care that you care and are listening and open to learning, you know, these really powerful and moments of, of and, and kind of moments of coming to understanding um, happen right and and these little the, all of that is part of this broader shift in societal consciousness and and so it was really that story for me of him saying 
I got into politics because at my core, I'm a storyteller and I've lived a good story and I'm proud of it and I'm proud to share that story. You know, that he said, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> At the time, my parents were really wanting me to go into law. My mom said, go to law school. I said, well, I just interviewed Senator Obama, and he said that the most important thing to do is tell stories. So I'm going to stick with journalism. Um, and that's why I love teaching journalism. I love practicing journalism. It is so exciting to tell stories and to tell true stories and to try to tell them in ways that move people. Um and we know, again, first create understanding and beyond that, uh, potentially move people to action. Thank you so much, Amanda. That was very insightful. And especially here on campus, there's a lot of stories that people are telling and you learn from them and change your like shifts in mindset, et cetera. So thank you so much. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. But thank you once again um, for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amanda, for joining us today. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Hey, Nathan here. Amanda Little had so much more to share with us today that we just couldn't get to because of time restraints. She wanted to emphasize just how many jobs there are in agriculture and that the discipline is very intersectional. So, no matter if you're interested in engineering, tech, journalism, or basically any other field, there is a place for you in the future of agriculture. This message has not been sponsored by Big Agriculture, by the way. See you next time.